You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the United Nations. I remember when the United Nations came into being, there was great hope that it would bring about world peace. In 1948, or late 1947, that is, the United Nations voted to create two states in Palestine, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, and the UN did nothing to bring that state into being. And when the Jewish state was attacked by a number of Arab countries, no help was given by the UN to the Jewish state. It came into being after a war, cost a lot of lives, and it was done only by the Jews with help from a few others, but not from the UN as the UN. And over the years, the UN has uh, passed all kind of uh, uh, votes, uh, uh, essentially um, against Israel. Now, they came up with one now that I think especially should be spoken to. Last week, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued a statement in which he condemned very violently Israel's advancement of several thousand new homes in the area known as the West Bank, which is that area that was taken over by Israel in the 1967 war. The Secretary General, and his wording is the following, the Secretary General reiterates that settlements are a flagrant violation of international law and relevant United Nations resolutions. Israel's persistent expansion of its settlements in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem, deepens humanitarian needs, significantly fuels violence, increases the risk of confrontation, further entrenches the occupation, and undermines the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination, unquote. Um, It continually refers to the West Bank, of course, as the occupied West Bank. Interestingly enough, in 1967, when Israel took over that area, it was indeed occupied by a foreign power, occupied by Jordan. Israel didn't occupy it, it simply returned that land to its basic owners, the Jewish people. Now, Now, people will say, on one hand, that Jews are able to live and should live throughout their ancestral homeland, that the settlement of Jews in Judea and Samaria is essentially does the act of righting the historic wrong of the Jews having been kicked out of there under occupation of various different countries, and being kicked out for almost 2,000 years, and now in 1967, we came back to our land. That's what the uh, proponents of Jewish settlement will say. Now, the opponents 
will say that the expansion of Israeli communities represents a violation of international law. It limits the land available for a Palestinian state. It further enmeshes the Jews and the Palestinians, uh, making it more difficult to disentangle them in the future, that it endangers Israeli security forces and endangers unnecessarily civilians, it antagonizes the Palestinians, and it weakens moderate forces in the Palestinian society. These are all the arguments against the Jews living in Judea and Samaria. Interesting enough, by the way, that the Palestinian Authority has nothing done nothing to really set up any kind of a state. They're busy paying uh, the, the widows and orphans of terrorists, but that's another story. So there's been an ongoing debate uh, in Israel particularly and uh, in, among those engaged in the Middle East politics since uh, 1948. And uh, Guterres, who's the uh, Secretary General of the UN, is as entitled to express a position as anyone else. However, that there is one claim that he makes that we must disagree with very vehemently, he says that the construction of homes for Israeli families significantly fuels violence. That is absolutely not tr true for a very simple reason. Anybody who knows the history, particularly of the last 150 years, knows that terrorists, Arab terrorists, have never lacked pretext to attack Jews. For example, in 1929, Jews went to the Western Wall to pray. There was no Jewish state yet, and uh, it was used as a rallying cry by the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimin al-Saini. He incited mob, murdered dozens of Jews in Hebron and throughout Israel, throughout Palestine. That was in 1929. In 1966, it was the immigration of Jews to Palestine who were trying to get away from the Nazis in Europe, and they bought local land, and it was exploited by the leaders of the Arab revolt to claim the lives of hundreds of Jews and Arabs from 1936 to 1939. In 1947 and in 1948, it was the formation of the Jewish National Home, the State of Israel, that the irregular forces attacked Jews and Arab countries sent their troops here to attack attract uh, attack Jews and they destroyed Jewish property in an effort to prevent the state of Israel from actually coming into being that was in 1948 now all these years later 75 years later it is the construction of homes for Israeli families in Judea and Samaria that Palestinian terrorist groups use as an excuse to murder Jews. And that is simply wrong. If it were true that the construction of homes causes violence, 
it would follow logically that the absence of such construction uh, would bring about a stop to the violence. Though what happened was, the proof that this is not what happens is there was a 10-month settlement freeze declared by our Prime Minister back in November 2009, and during that settlement freeze, murders of Jews continued. Numerous Israelis, soldiers, and civilians were murdered by Palestinian terrorists during the period when there was no construction, and the Palestinian leadership came up with all kinds of excuses to refuse to come to the negotiating temple table, which they're still refusing, by the way. Now, what is the cause? What is driving Palestinian terrorism? It's the persistent refusal, the hatred, and the inability to accept any sovereign Jewish presence in this land. The hatred, the dehumanization of Jews, the ongoing incitement to violence in Palestinian schools and mosques, and the Palestinian authorities' incentivation of terrorism by giving financial rewards to families of people who murder Jews. That is something simply wrong. So it's very important for the UN Secretary General and the UN and the world to know that Jewish homes, Jewish settlements are not the cause of violence. Violence is caused by terrorists who don't want to see any Jews living in this land. And to compare the construction of homes to the wanton murder of innocents is to engage in a stunning perversion of basic moralities. And when the Secretary General of the UN makes such a comparison, it brings shame to the United Nations and is so violently opposed to the the reason that the United Nations came into being. It's not Jewish homes that cause violence. It's the hatred of the Palestinians for the Jews that causes violence. Nothing has to do with the building of Jewish homes. There was violence before Jewish homes were being built, There is violence now that Jewish homes are being built. There's no relation between hate of Jews and violence against Jews and the number of homes or settlements being built by the State of Israel. The UN is completely wrong. And in a sense, comments by the head of the UN is is essentially, as I see it, really a violation of the UN Charter. UN Charter was supposed to bring about peace among nations, and what is being done by the Secretary General is completely the opposite, unfortunately. Now I want to move on to a totally different topic, but I think it's an important one. 
And that is the relationship between the United States and Israel. Israel and the United States are allies and they help each other. For example, when uh, the United States provides uh, munitions and airplanes to Israel, Israel improves those airplanes and the improvements are fed back into the American defense industry. So there's a mutual relationship. Now, the uh, while it claims to support democratic norms and values, including the democratically elected leader of our nation, uh, it's we have a problem with the Biden administration. The Biden administration is weighing in very heavily on internal Israeli domestic affairs and, uh, for example, has condemned Jewish Israeli visits to the holiest religious sites in Jerusalem. Now, now the Biden administration has reimposed a ban that cuts scientific and technological cooperation with Israeli institutions in Judea and Samaria. This did not get big headlines. Essentially what it is, a boycott of Jews and Jewish institutions that exist anywhere in Judea and Samaria, and they claim that these Israeli institutions should not exist in the land erroneously called by many occupied Palestinian territory. Now, what these people who, who don't want to see uh, Jewish uh, institutions get American aid over the Green Line, what they don't realize is that the so-called borders they claim that Israel has violated by building their settlements, they're called settlements, are actually nothing more than the armistice lines from the war that was launched back in 1948 by some of Israel's Arab neighbors in a failed effort to destroy the Jewish state before it came into being. At the very end of the Obama-Biden term, the administration of the United States shamefully abstained as the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution called US 2334, which deemed any Jewish presence over the 1967 lines to be in violation of international law. In other words, that resolution by the United Nations said that the Jewish return to the Western Wall the restoration of the 3,000-year-old Mount of Olives Jewish Cemetery, reclaiming of Jewish rights to the resting places of the Jewish people's matriarchs and patriarchs outside Bethlehem and Hebron are akin to war crimes. So that resolution, U.S. 2334, like so many other U.N. resolutions, continues what is essentially a diplomatic pretense that there is a concept of international law that applies to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, there are all these resolutions 
uh, world is consensus in the UN will not solve anything. The, uh, the Trump administration tried to stop the wholesale rejection of Jewish claims over Turkey and Jewish holy places beyond the armistice lines, and Trump actually, uh, uh, his administration moved the American embassy to Jerusalem and deemed the Jewish cities and towns and villages in the areas of Judea and Samaria as not illegal per se. Now, that was a big change from former U.S. administration policies. And former President Trump also withdrew from the anti-Semitic UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, which was a specialized agency of the U.N., supposedly aimed at promoting world peace and security. And he withdrew from that because it simply was not doing its job. Now, UNESCO never missed an opportunity to deny Jewish history in the land. And the Biden administration has indicated will re-enter UNESCO uh, this month, even though the organization has openly declared war on Jewish heritage sites. Now, it is really doing is engaging in a historical revisionism regarding Jewish history. So what we are seeing now, unfortunately, is a return by the Biden administration to prior policies that are really troubling. It's threatening to Israel. By the way, the Biden administration is reportedly negotiating a new deal with the Iranian regime, which will once again provide the Iranian regime with billions of dollars uh, while not requiring the regime to dismantle its nuclear program. So we have a problem with American foreign policy. Uh, the, uh, and it is really a problem with the Biden administration. The Biden administration also has now decided, as I said a moment ago, to stop scientific and technological cooperation with Jewish groups Jewish entities in Judea and Samaria, Golan Heights, and what the Biden administration and others refer to as East Jerusalem. The Biden administration's intention now is to discriminate against Jews and Jewish institutions based on where they, they are located. And this would be a very backward step in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. The, uh, for example, one of the places that's over the green line has a tremendous number of technological research institutions is called Ariel University, which is right smack in the middle of what we call the West Bank. It's a, and it is a place that services Jews and Arabs alike. There are students there who are Arabs. Now, this, what the Biden administration is is withdrawing funds for research that's being done there. And a decision by the Biden administration actually fosters, uh, I believe, anti-Semitism. It's nothing more than a boycott of Jews who live, work, study, and create 
in areas of Judea and Samaria, which is the heartland of Jewish history. Now, a U.S. Department, State Department representative claims that this guidance is simply reflective of the long-standing U.S. position that the ultimate disposition of the geographic areas which came under the administration of Israel after June 5, 1967, is a final status matter. That's what this U.S. Department claims. In this reality, the policy does something much different. What they're doing, and they want to deny or even uproot Jewish history, it's discriminatory and emboldens Palestinians' demands. It drives the potential for peace between Israel and the Palestinians even further away. What, ha what the Biden administration is really doing, when you think about it, it's doing away with Jewish history. It's negotiation at the same time with the Iranian regime, the regime to enable it to continue to threaten Israel and even potentially attack the Jewish state with nuclear weapons. And worse, it does this while telling us there is nothing to see here. There is much to see in these terribly misguided decisions by the, human, the United States government. Hopefully, saner heads will prevail and this will not happen. Very disappointing move by the Biden administration. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about two organizations or I guess you say entities that have taken a position vis-a-vis -vis the state of Israel, which I think is essentially immoral. One is an organization called B'Tselem. You can look them up on the internet. It's an Israeli organization that always criticizes Israel and justifies Palestinian violence. The other group that I want to talk about, believe it or not, it seems odd to say so compared to B'Tselem, but is the United States State Department. A report was recently issued by the Israel Defense and Security Forum, uh, which is made up of former, uh, primarily former officers and high officers in the Israeli army, who study what's happening here in the Middle East, and they put out a report recently. I want to speak about that report, because it's important that we know what is being said about us, particularly by the U.S. State Department. They have a, there is a policy of moral equivalence between what the Palestinian terrorists do after all, what do terrorists do? They target innocent civilians, and uh, and they also target Israeli soldiers who are targeting terrorists. 
So they put both the Israeli army and the terrorists that they are targeting in the same, uh, uh, and they balance them out together in the same basket uh, of sorrow on both sides. Uh, what, I'll explain in a moment what I mean. There's a fundamental gap in the basic no understanding of the U.S. administration's understanding of basic notions of what is required in national security and foreign policy. This organization called the Israel Defense and Security Forum just came out with a report. For example, last month, Israeli soldiers were called to swart ticking time bombs in the Palestinian city of Jenin. By the way, while I am record, I'm recording this program on Monday afternoon, while there is a major Israeli action in the city of Jenin. If you look on the map, it's right smack in the middle of Israel, in the middle of Palestine. It is a center of terrorist activities. That area has become a hotbed for terrorist groups and manufacturing laboratories for weapons. So they are um, casting terror over nearby roads and towns and managing to strike against what I guess you would call Israel public soft belly, uh, the cities, terror attacks in the cities. This is hardly the first time Israeli forces are required to clean up the mess left by the Palestinian Authority. We're simply not doing the job that it was supposed to do. It has a total lack of sovereignty over areas as taken under its auspices. In fact, these counterterrorism operations are taking place almost daily. Today, as I speak, there is a major operation, and uh, perhaps later on this program or tomorrow when I do the program, I'll talk about the results. Right now, we don't know the action is actually taking place. The soldiers have met heavy fire in the city, including explosive devices, and there are shots being uh, taken by terrorists on the rescue helicopters. Five terrorists were killed several days ago, including a member of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist group, and four were arrested. And the Palestinian Isla uh, Islamic Jihad, PIJ, is a group recognized as a terrorist group by the American government. That action took place about a week and a half ago, but a day later, as a um, right near a, a gas station near the Israeli community of Ali, which you look on the map, is south of Jenin. It's between Jenin and um, and uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it was full of uh, citizens uh, eating hamburgers and filling their cars, and two Palestinian gunmen stormed the place, murdered four including three teenagers. One of the terrorists was shot down by local civilians who happened to be armed, and the other was eliminated about two hours later by Israeli security forces. Yet, 
While these things were occurring, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, who's now retiring, is going to be replaced. His name is Tom Nides. He chose in a tweet to put both Israel counterterrorism operations against Palestinian terrorists, militants plotting attacks on Palestinian terrorists and Israeli civilians they murder in the same basket. He said civilian death and injuries have occurred in the West Bank. That's hardly the first time U.S. departments of state have struggled with making that distinction, which raises serious questions about its judgment when it comes to foreign policy and fundamental concepts of national security. I'll give you another example of what I mean. Uh, in January, several months ago, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited the Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah, north of Jerusalem. Just four days beforehand, a Palestinian man opened fire at Jewish worshippers in front of a Jerusalem synagogue, and he murdered seven innocent people, including a 14-year-old boy, and, um, of course, that, that turned these uh, killers into Palestinian heroes. And the day before, Israeli forces entered the same city of Jenin to arrest Palestinian terrorists plotting attacks just like the one carried out in Jerusalem. Now, when the Israeli forces entered Jenin, there was a firefight in which 10 terrorists were killed as one civilian who was passing by. Now, at the podium, speaking uh, uh, together with the head of the Palestinian uh, Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, the U.S. Secretary of State, Blinken, had a rare chance to muster the kind of assertiveness needed to, take, uh, to talk to Abbas for supporting terrorism. Uh, by the way, a... Uh, uh, $370 million annually is dedicated by the Palestinian Authority for salaries for terrorists who murdered Israelis and their families. Yet, when Blinken spoke in Ramallah, he, he opened by expressing his sorrow at the death of both Palestinians and Israelis, and essentially what he did was he drew a moral equivalent between Israeli victims and Palestinian terrorists. He said, and I quote, Palestinians and Israelis alike are experiencing growing insecurity, growing fear in their homes, in their communities, and in their places of worship, unquote. He went further by expressing sorrow for the innocent Palestinian civilians who have lost their lives in escalating violence over the last year. That's his words. Now, this acquiescence, if you will, with the Palestinian narrative on killed Palestinians is typical of the U.S. administration's public, public statements, and it relies both on serious misconceptions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, by the way, the, the uh, 
This denies reports by EU-funded Israeli NGOs, which distribute databases and statistics on casualties among Palestinians, often taking their word for it with no fact-checking. Now, this organization, which I said at the beginning called Israel Defense and Security Forum, has done research and fact-checked all these claims particularly those made by the this uh, B'Tselem organization, which has gained significant media attention and is often echoed by senior government and officials and the European Union. B'Tselem, this pro-Palestinian organization here in Israel, runs a database that counts Palestinians uh, deliberately labeling them, labeling them killed Palestinians while underscoring their ethnicity rather than actually classifying the Arab, these Arabs who were t- or killed as terrorists. Now, the, since Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, expressed his concern over pa- Palestinian ca- casualties, this organization, the Israel Defense and Security Forum, surveyed 146 names of Palestinians that B'Tselem classified as killed Palestinians, without any other word, killed Palestinians, in 2022. Of these 146, the Israel Defense and Security found out they identified 85% as indisputably terrorists or militants, and three, a little over 3% are, uh, uh, as otherwise involved in clashing with the Israeli army. In the, in the B'Tselem database, they, have, I'll give, they, they found an example. A man named Ibrahim Nabulsi, an arch-terrorist responsible for multiple terror attacks against Israeli civilians, and Jamal Zabidi, a senior terrorist from Fatah's Al-Aqsa Brigades, shot at soldiers who were arresting a suspect, and they were taken down. Both their ties to terrorism were never mentioned in B'Tselem's database. They were simply Palestinians who were killed by the air Israeli army, not a word about the fact they were indeed terrorists. The Israeli Defense and Security Forum, for example, found in this database 38 Palestinians who unprovoked threw rocks or Molotov cocktails at soldiers, risking the soldiers' lives, and as many as 50 terrorists are known to have carried out shooting attacks against soldiers and civilians, including a Hamas terrorist and six who attacked IDF soldiers with improvised explosive. Now, B'Tselem listed these Palestinian terrorists who were killed as victims. However, they were only claimed by Palestinian groups, and B'Tselem is such no way to corroborate the circumstances of their death against any certified source. Now, so the Palestinian terrorists who are not included from B'Tselem's database 
and terrorists were falsely described as civilians, there's a good reason to doubt the credibility. And there are other examples. I don't want to bore the listeners to all kinds of examples. <coughs> now, it is certainly true that civilian casualties, what they call collateral damage, occurred during Israeli army camp terrorism raids in Palestinian cities. But that happens all the time in war. Go, just think about the Second World War. How many innocent Germans, perhaps anti-Nazis, were killed by bombing by British and American planes. That's what happens in war. There's so-called collateral damage. Same is true in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. That yet B'Tselem mischaracterized 146 terrorists as killed Palestinians rather than targeted terrorists because they tried to slander Israel's legitimacy to defend itself. Now, unlike Palestinian terrorists who deliberately target innocents, the Israeli army does not target civilians deliberately, but rather makes the utmost effort to avoid civilian casualties in, in the densest, most complex urban settings that exist, the, the uh, cities in the Palestinian area are extremely densely occupied. And the Israeli army has extremely prudent rules of engagement, and they essentially do what you could call microsurgical targeting and they, uh, they've actually led to a number of casualties, but a very moderate number on the Palestinian side. Now, had our army adopted the tactics used by other Western armies in their counterterrorism operation in dense urban areas, we would have witnessed many more non-combatant casualties. We go out of our way not to arm non-combatants. That is one of the significant things about the Israeli army. They go out of the way. They've often canceled operations in order not to harm civilians. As a matter of fact, the former British commander in the Afghan Afghanistan war, Colonel uh, Richard Kemp, who appears on Israeli television quite often, said, and I quote, no army in the world acts with as much discretion and great care as the IDF in order to minimize damage. The U.S. and the United Kingdom were careful, but not as much as Israel, unquote. So if the U.S. State Department and the, uh, if since the state, the Secretary of State, cannot distinguish between military forces that are stopping attacks and terrorists who target civilians, how will they be able to defend themselves against impending investigations in the International Criminal Court in, in, in um, Europe? So there is false symmetry, false moral relativism, and they, the main point that the State Department of the United States is missing about Israel. They ignore the wider context 
of continuous state-funded and widely hailed Palestinian commitment to the so-called armed struggle against Israel's very existence, even before the State of Israel was established. Do, do Secretary Blinken or Ambassador Nye suggest that IDF forces simply walk into Palestinian cities and kill innocent Palestinians? Do they see all the Palestinians killed as killed Palestinians, ignoring the fact that most of them were shooting at Israeli soldiers who were performing arrests to thwart imminent terror attacks when they were killed? Do they consider both Palestinian terrorists plotting attacks and Israelis who are sitting in arrest to be the same? This is a distorted comparison. The year 2023 has been no less turbulent for Israeli forces than 2022. 200 major attacks by Palestinian terrorists were thwarted in the first quarter of this year alone, as opposed to 500 in the year of 2022. So there's been a more than 50% year-on-year increase in attempts to murder Israelis. So according to statistics that were uh, collected by the Israel Defense and Security Forum, the in January through May of this year, at least 80% of the total killed Palestinians were terrorists or rioters. So the, uh, the U.S. Department treats Palestinian leadership with very gently uh, and uh, so essentially is a green light to continue what they're doing. No wonder that during the past few months we witnessed countless more Palestinian attacks, including the murder of several American citizens. So Blinken had an opportunity to clearly and unequivocally refute Ab- Abbas's libels, including that Israel practice apartheid. He should have reminded Abbas of his own wrongdoing and urged him to stop paying terrorists stipends for killing Jews. If he's a, that would be a basic requirement for anybody to be a potential peace partner with Israel. No, so uh, and in front of the cameras, the American representation, the Secretary of State are essentially sending extremely uh, worrying messaging. To, uh, it is a distorted understanding of the Palestinian policy based perhaps on low expectations, which is essentially a patronizing approach toward the Palestinians and simply eternalize the conflict. And uh, maybe they have political considerations, but it doesn't matter. So the, uh, so the credibility uh, of, uh, of the American Secretary of State is really fairly low. It's time that the U.S. State Department and its representatives make a simple and morally right distinction and call out terrorism for what it is. The, what the Palestinian terrorists do is not the equivalent and what the Israeli army does to protect its citizens. So the moral equivalence 
that is uh, used by Secretary of State Blinken and the former Ambassador Nides is simply wrong. There's no who ways about it. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the use or misuse of language by the media. there are but a few of the, there are all kinds of examples of the large and small failings of the medium when reporting and commenting on the Arab conflict with Israel. Now, they do this a lot, and all these uh, failings pile up and pervert the consumer's understanding and appreciation of the complexity of the issues here in uh, Eretz Israel by simply hiding, misstating, and twisting words, twisting terms, and twisting events. The media have for decades sought to employ their own semantic instrumentalities to interpret the Arab attempt to eliminate the state of Israel, and they they color Israel's policies and actions to the detriment of the actual events occurring and Israel's response to them. In other words, they paint a picture which is not really the truth of what's happening on the ground. Uh, the New York Times about a month ago was trying to explain Israel's what they called expansion of settlements. And at the Times wrote, the supporters of the settler movement view the West Bank, which they call by its biblical names Judea and Samaria, as that that is what we use instead of the West Bank. Now, the West Bank was a term that did not exist until 1948, when the uh, Hashemite kingdom of uh, Jordan, which at that time was still called Transjordan, illegally took over areas west of the Jordan River and what we call Eretz Israel. And now, since the Hashemite kingdom controlled areas both east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan, they invented the term West Bank. No such term had ever existed before. They essentially violate Israel's historical connection to this land. And during the entire period of the British Mandate, for example, as well as most maps for the past few centuries, this area, there was no such word as West Bank. It was called Judea and Samaria. In the 1947 United Nations Partition Proposal, in the section delineated that is Jewish state's borders, Judea and Samaria were the terms employed. Those biblical names were employed by the UN back in 1947. Now, 
they they freely the media freely used the word West Bank, which is a term did not exist until the Hashemite Kingdom illegal illegally took control of it. Now most readers and most listeners simply don't know. Jordan invented the term West Bank. When in April of 1950, Jordan annexed it, so they did it illegally. It was a naked occupation. And interesting enough, at that time, when Jordan, in 1950, illegally uh, <coughs> uh, occupied the area west of the Jordan River, only Great Britain and Pakistan recognized it. Not even one Arab state recognized Jordan's control of the territory, which they called the West Bank. <coughs> now, by the way, Article 6 of the League of Nations mandate, which was in 1922, included a guaranteed right of close Jewish settlement throughout the territory to become the reconstituted Jewish national home, which at that time extended from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. So it didn't define areas east of the Jordan River because uh, for various political reasons. Now, interesting, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, who I've mentioned previous on this, previous on this program, Anthony Blinken, was interviewed um, on the, uh, by the someone on the Council of Foreign Relations back in June of this year. The media widely and even prominently highlighted his words that he had told both Israel's prime minister and foreign minister that basically, if there's a fire burning in their backyard, it's going to be a lot tougher, if not impossible, uh, to do make the diplomatic agreements with Arab countries. So these, the, um, essentially this was like bashing Israel. So the, um, you have to ask yourself an interesting question. And a friend of mine, Israel Maydad, is very interesting. He does a lot of commentary on uh, international affairs, particularly about Israel. He said, you know, I wonder whether Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron to discuss the fires burning in his backyard in Paris. The news from Paris is all about rioting for the last week. In the context of international diplomacy, it would be nice to know whether Israel is treated as an equal to other American allies or whether Israel is subjected to a negative extraordinary treatment. Which I think it does. The um, so uh, the uh, the uh, as a matter of fact, I give another example. And the Voice of America uh, in June, June twentieth, made a report on the radio dealing with what they call Palestinian refugees, misleadingly informed that almost nine hundred thousand Palestinians living in the West Bank are classified as refugees, meaning that they were displaced from their homes in 1948. 
Now, the truth of the matter, maybe there are 10,000 Palestinians living in that area who were displaced from their homes in 1948. It is true that Arabs were displaced from areas that became Israel, including, for example, the city of Lud and the city of Ramla, where many Arabs stayed. But maybe 10,000 were displaced. Many just simply ran away. So there was, uh, there, there were indeed some that were displaced for strategic reasons. Now, there were Jews living in Gush Etzion, south of Jerusalem. There were Jews living in the Dead Sea area. There were Jews living all around Jerusalem who were turned into refugees in 1948. And uh, the, um, the, the um, by the way, for example, there are two, um, I live in Jerusalem, there are two areas of Jerusalem not far away from where I live. Uh, a train ride away, one's called Nachlot Shimon, and the other's called Shimon Atzadi. The, uh, the, um, the right rail in uh, Jerusalem has stations there, and uh, these people, uh, uh, that these are areas in the eastern neighbors in the cities uh, uh, east of the, uh, east and slightly north of the old city, they were forced to become displaced after Arab attacks in December 1947. So, so, uh, Today, they are now part of Jerusalem, although most of the people who live there are indeed Arabs, but there are a number of Jewish settlers, if you will, living there. So the point I wanted to make is the use of language is very important, and simply uh, using language in a certain way in a common uh, news report can give the wrong impression of the reality of what's happening on the ground. And so the idea of occupied territories and misplaced persons and refugees, these are bandied about by the media without people really know, knowing what the real numbers are involved. And we simply have to keep correcting these things. And again, I think the major one of all these things is the use of the word West Bank. As I said before, and I repeat it again, it's very important. There was no such place known as the West Bank until 1950 when the King of Jordan illicitly, illegally, took over the area west of the Jordan River and called it the West Bank. No such place existed before. It was called Judea and Samaria, and that was this historic name used by everybody, including uh, the British, when they had control here after the First World War. So... The use of languages is very important because it sets pictures in people's minds. Sometimes the pictures are simply wrong. Now, I want to go on to a different subject, but it's something I'm, I'm afraid it's going to keep repeating itself. Israel had did an operation last week in the city of Jenin. If you take a look at the city of Jenin, it's right smack in the middle of the uh, on the western west of the Jordan River of, of Eretz Israel, and um, it uh, was given back to the Palestinians in the in the 1990s. Now it was an area taken over by Israel in 1967. Now there's been a tremendous amount of terrorism originating there, 
And at the beginning of last week, Israel made an operation there called the Operation Home and Garden. That was the name. The idea was to stop terrorists who were seeking to destroy Israel. The uh, the uh, It was a very violent fight. The fight. Israeli soldiers tried to reach undetected the most legitimate targets on the pl- planet, which are people who would annihilate our country. And interesting enough, <coughs> our Prime Minister Netanyahu used that term at a party, a Fourth of July party held at the U.S. Embassy, which is about a mile away from where I live. Now, he said, and I quote, this is the day to remember that freedom is precious and it's never free. Often it involves firm and decisive efforts against those who seek to destroy freedom and pursue terror. The uh, And th- this is what our Prime Minister said at the U.S. Embassy on July 4th. Unfortunately, in recent months, Jenin has become a safe haven for terrorism, and they attack. It's the base for vicious attacks against Israeli men, women, and children. So, what's happening now is Israel sent soldiers into Jenin to do what they can and try to avoid civilian casualties. Now. Israel has a right to exercise its right to self-defense, and Israel will do so, continue, as long as it takes to complete these kinds of missions. Uh, it's interesting, this attack took place in Jenin by the Israeli army. It turns out that, uh, that Israel had told Washington about it about 10 days in advance. Israel informed Washington that it was planning to try to root out territories from the West Bank city of Jenin, when, but when Israel informed Washington, it did not tell Washington when it would do so. It didn't provide any specific details. So they were just simply told the Americans that we, that Israel was going to do something. And it, it, Israel informed the Americans, without giving dates, that we cannot avoid entering Jenin. The, uh, so the Americans were uh, told in advance. Now, the, you know, the, I think... What the Americans care about here, of course, is stability. And, and of course, the U.S. State Department said it's monitoring this situation closely. Um, now, this um, operation by the Israeli army in Jenin is the largest operation since the Second Intifada and it used both airstrikes and infantry, and and the the city the city has turned into a hub for recent terrorist attacks, and Israel had to do something about it. Now, of course, the uh, the UN there's somebody called the UN Humanitarian Coordinator for the Palestinians. They they tweeted 
that they were alarmed by the scale of Israeli forces operating in Jenin, the occupied West Bank. Airstrikes were used in the densely populated refugee camp, several dead and critically wounded, access to all injured, all injured must be ensured, and the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Areas in the Occupied Palestinian Territory is mobilizing humanitarian partners to provide assistance. This is what the UN said. So they are very concerned about what's going on. They do nothing to stop it, of course, and we have to defend our people. Even other countries who 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 uh, who condemn the attack, it's just meaningless. The, the responsibility of the Israeli government is to defend its citizens. So the... Uh, the, we have to do what we have to do to protect our citizens. And when I say protect our citizens, I mean our citizens, whether they're Palestinians or Jews. Israel, every government, and Israel is uh, not different than any other government, has to do what it has to do protect, to protect its citizens. And if it means going into a terrorist net, like uh, like Jinnin, then that's what you have to do. We endanger our own soldiers by doing so. But it is our job, the job of the government, the responsibility of the government, to defend its civilians. So to be, to be attacked for doing so by the UN or by anybody else is simply totally meaningless. We have to do what we have to do. I know it sounds like a strange way to put it, but the responsibility of a government, the basic responsibility of a government, is to protect the safety of its citizens. Incidentally, I want to add something, because July 4th is the anniversary of the Entebbe raid, which took place on July 4th, 1976, when a uh, a plane had been uh, an air an Air France plane had been hijacked and taken to Antibody in the heart of Africa, and Israeli went uh, sent troops there and saved uh, the Americans. One Israeli soldier was killed. It turned out he was the brother of the guy who was sent, eventually became uh, prime minister. And Nat- Yoni Netanyahu, our prime minister brother, was the only Israeli killed there. One uh, one of the hostages was also killed. The uh, So, uh, and speaking about it, on July 4th this year, our prime minister said, and I quote, The rescue of hostages targeted simply because they were Jews epitomized the deepest meaning of the rebirth of the Jewish state. On occurring on the 4th of July, this historic mission also underscored the deep bond between America and Israel. The rise of America ensured the rise of freedom in our world. Time and again, the United States defeated the forces of totalitarianism and terror. In this and many other ways, Israel has no better ally than the United States, and the United States has no better ally than Israel. This is what our 
Prime Minister, Minister said at the American Embassy on July 4th, and he concluded his words by saying, Happy birthday, America. May God bless our unbreakable bond. That's our Prime Minister at the American Embassy on July 4th. And we have, hopefully, an unbreakable bond with the United States. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. One minute of Torah. Pinchas is the name of this week's Torah portion, as well as the name of the hero who is rewarded in this reading for his righteous, zealous deed that ended a plague. At a time when Moses and Aaron, the leaders of his day, were frozen, weeping, unsure what to do, Pinchas took bold action, correctly killing the sinners as Torah law describes. He saves his nation from death and is granted the gift of priesthood for him and his descendants. Also in this week's reading is the story of the daughters of Tzalafchad. These five sisters, too, did not remain silent when faced with an injustice. As the only survivors of their father's family, they feared they would not receive a portion in the land of Israel and their father's name would be erased forever. God declares their argument sound and the daughters are given their father's portion in the land of Israel as an inheritance. Furthermore, a law was then established ensuring that anyone who died without sons would leave his estate for his daughters. What a lesson for all of us! When we see something that needs to be corrected, let us not wait for leaders and the men of great to fix it for us. Stand up, pursue peace, seek justice, look in the Torah and find ways to better your life and the world at large. With your Ein of Torah, this is Chava Zikavich. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The state of Israel is going through an extremely difficult period now. All is the result of the Oslo agreements back in the early 1990s brought Arafat and his terrorists back from exile in North Africa and gave them control of the Gaza area and the central part of Israel. If you look at the map, the city of Jenin, which is under the Palestinian Authority, is not far from many Israeli population centers, and it has become the headquarters of all kinds of terrorism. So what happened was last week that Israel was forced to go in and clean up as much as it could, but it did not remain there to occupy. One recipe for a successful military operation is to clearly define goals at the beginning, try to accomplish the goals, and then end the operation before expanding those goals and risk getting bogged down. That's what Israel did last week, it did what was called Operation Home and Garden. That was a name that the army gave to it. And the stated goal was to target the terrorist infrastructure in the city of Jenin and degrade the terrorist capabilities. What happened was that the IDF, the Israeli army, successfully knocked out terrorist command centers uncovered weapon labs and armed stockpiles, killed nearly a dozen terrorists, and apprehended ten times that number. It also signaled that it was ready to end the operation quickly. 
Now, the so the 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 campaign, which was only a few days in length, seemed successful at an operational and tactical level. It was well planned. It was effectively executed. There were no IDF fatalities and minimal harm to non-combatants. But the question we have to ask ourselves is what comes next? The city of Jenin is under the control or lack of control of the Palestinian Authority. So various analysts have come come up what they call a two-part question, uh, operational and strategic. First of all, operationally, once the Israeli army leaves Jenin, what could prevent the terrorists from rebuilding the infrastructure there and posing a threat to the country once again? We have to prevent them from building workshops or producing roadside bombs and labs for manufacturing primitive rockets. As a matter of fact, just last week, one, nine people were wounded in a terrorist attack right smack in the middle of Tel Aviv. This is the kind of thing that we are facing, and it's a very, very serious problem And so far, there appears to be no long-range solution, which is a very difficult issue. Uh, We like to think that the uh, the best minds in our country are working on this problem, but we have a hostile population of several, which if we don't go in and clean them out, then they start all over again, and we have to go in again. We, that is, we have to prevent the Janine refugee camp from becoming a sanctuary for terrorists who are carrying out attacks all over Israel. And by the way, um, when I was, did the reserve duty, I, was, uh, I spent time in uh, some of these refugee camps. In those days... It was before the uh, terrorists rebuilt themselves that one could go through there, uh, I won't say fairly safely, but today it's impossible. The the relatively small number of terrorists killed or apprehended in this operation indicates they evaded the Israeli soldiers. Israel has a lot of um, agents looking to what's happening in these areas, the uh, the Israeli army has identified 350 armed terrorists uh, in the city of Jenin beyond the 120 they arrested. So that means these people didn't vanish, and once the Israeli army leaves, they're likely to be even more motivated to carry out attacks. So to prevent the terrorists from doing this kind of thing, then the army will need to go back into Jenin again and again. This cannot be a one-time operation because its effectiveness would rapidly diminish after each time. So the uh, if the world were run 
According to the agreements reached in Oslo, the Palestinian Authority security apparatus will be doing the job, preventing terrorism. Because the Palestinian Authority is not doing its job, our army has to operate in its place. That means that our army will need to go into Jenin over and over again to keep the terrorists from having freedom of movement and action. So, the, uh, the and also, after our army withdraws from Jinin, the security forces must brace for retaliatory attacks of the kind carried out by a lone terrorist in Tel Aviv last week. Now, there's another thing, by the way, and now it's becoming a bit of a problem. There was Jewish revenge attacks in response to these terror attacks. Uh, the uh, It was done by some Jewish, I guess you can call them radicals, and they are morally reprehensible and wrong, but also they, they, they sap international legitimacy for the types of military actions taken by Israel. The, if, if you have Israeli uh, revenge attacks, then the foreign governments and the foreign media say, well, the Israelis are just as bad as the Arabs. So we have a problem not only against Arab terrorism, but it's our job to, to stop Jew, Jewish revenge terrorism. So, so Israel has to take actions to prevent the buildup of terrorist networks in the entire area that was handed over to the Palestinian Authority. These are supported by Iran, by Hamas, and by Hezbollah. Now, also, because these things are happening right smack in the middle of Judea and Samaria, what you call the West Bank, they might start acting up in Gaza also, or maybe on the border with Lebanon, so where these terrorist organizations can launch rockets toward Israel to show sol solidarity with Jenin. That the real fighting did not spread to other fronts this time around doesn't guarantee that the same outcome will happen next time. So, all this is on the tactical and operational level. Now, truth of the matter is, on a strategic level, Israel needs to find its goals. So, the... Uh, the aim of what happened so far was to target the terrorist infrastructures without occupying and remaining in Jenin. So there was no, that was a military goal. There, no diplomatic goal was articulated. Now, obviously, we want to degrade the terrorist organization's capability in Jenin. But then what happens afterward? What's Israel's vision for that area, for Jenin? Does it want the Palestinian Authority to regain control of the city? If so, what political, diplomatic, or financial incentives is it willing to give the Palestinian Authority to motivate it to assert control over the city of Jenin? So, Israel must determine how far it's willing to support the Palestinian Authority and what actions it's prepared to take to weaken Hamas, which is the Palestinian Authority's main rival. 
So the um, our prime minister said just recently that while Israel wants to eliminate the Palestinian aspirations for statehood, it the uh, we cannot allow the Palestinian Authority collapse, according to our prime minister. He said we're we're prepared to help it financially. We have an interest in the Palestinian Authority continue to work. So the truth of the matter is that Netanyahu and our government must define what exactly that means and outline the steps he's willing to take to strengthen the Palestinian Authority so we'll have incentives to regain security control in areas like Jenin. Jenin today is a hotbed of terrorism. The, the, uh, the, 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 years ago when Naftali Bennett was the prime minister, uh, he spoke of shrinking the conflict with the, the Palestinians by reducing the friction. He wanted to increase Palestinian sovereignty through building a network of roadblock-free roads controlled by the Palestinians and ways to boost the Palestinian economy and decreasing the Israeli footprint in Palestinian-controlled areas. So that was something. It wasn't statehood. It was to give the Palestinian Authority more control. But so far, the Netanyahu government has not held down any diplomatic horizon for the Palestinians, and and we have a very serious problem. The um, the uh, Netanyahu speaks of not wanting to bring about the collapse of the Palestinian Authority or annexing the West Bank. Other voices are saying the opposite. So. We have to decide what the government really wants. If the aim is to collaborate with the Palestinian Authority, action should be taken to strengthen it and weaken its enemies. But the, we don't really know what our own government's intentions are. But the, uh, it, it is an extremely serious problem. The Oslo Accords brought a terrorist authority right smack into the heart of Israel. And this is what we have to deal with that. Incidentally, uh, there was an article the other day by Stephen Plato and, uh, Plato, and he said the following, what would happen, uh, uh, what would happen if the Palestinians had a state? The, uh, the these Palestinians have been demanding that the the autonomous Palestinian Authority regions be expanded and transformed into a full-fledged sovereign state of Palestine. So, it's fair to ask, what would things look today if they had indeed created a state, a sovereign state? A, full, a fully sovereign state is internationally recognized borders so that if a country sends its troops across another country's borders, that's war. So imagine this. Soon after the state of Palestine is established, Palestinian Arab terrorists shoot some Israelis and run to Jenin to hide. Or terrorists based in Jenin fire their rockets into nearby Israeli towns. Now, Israel, of course, would then appeal to the government of Palestine to take action, and nothing will be done. So, 
what would happen is Israel will have no choice but to send Israeli troops across the border into a sovereign state, the state of Palestine. So the major international media networks will immediately bombard the American public with reports portraying Israel as an aggressor. Palestinian children are, are in fear of the Israelis. And the entire world will come up against Israel because we have invaded an independent country. And the the members of the squad in the U.S. Congress will be all over the major television and radio talk shows denouncing Israel's outrageous violation of Palestinian sovereignty. And there are all kinds of things will happen to, to try to restrain Israel's provocative actions. So they'll, they'll talk their... It's just, it, we parallel. No, Israel be, would be invading a, a sovereign country in order to protect itself. So before you know it, the United Nations Security Council would have an urgent session accusing Israel of invading a foreign country, and they'll talk about international acts, sanctions against Israel. The uh, So it would be a terrible situation. Is this implausible and likely? Every time a terrorist strikes and then runs into the Janine, if it were an independent country, the Israelis would be confronted with a dilemma if they violate the border of the Palestinian state. They would face relentless condemnations around the world, political and diplomatic pressure, and the likelihood of sanctions. All of this would happen if there was a Palestinian state. Now, what is the bottom right now? There is no Palestinian state, and the current situation is extremely messy. The city of Jenin has become a hideout and a locale for terrorism right in on our borders. So, obviously, there will be unkind headlines about Israelis going in there, Israelis would be not be invading a sovereign state. So if if there was a Palestinian state, Israel would be hard pressed to defend itself, particularly against world opinion. Right now we have a situation which can it could be worse if there was a Palestinian state, but the situation right now is extremely untenable. For the foreseeable future, Israel will have to reinvade areas like Janin and risk the lives of Israeli soldiers over and over again. All of this is the results of the uh, Oslo Accords. We brought terrorists back from North Africa. We established them in the heartland of Eretz Israel. And now we have to deal with the results of the mistaken diplomatic move. That is the situation we're in now, 35 years after the Oslo Agreement that was welcomed on the lawn of the White House. That's the situation we're in now. I don't know the solution. I do know it is an extremely untenable situation. We cannot allow a hotbed of terrorism to exist 
with a short distance from our major cities and from our major highways. Israel is in a situation now which other countries, I believe, the best of my knowledge, never have to had to face. We perhaps the, the struggle in uh, Ireland many years between Northern and Southern Ireland and the British that that was similar. They solved it by simply separating. But um, I do not believe. I don't know the politics of Northern Ireland. I don't think the Northern Irish, even the most radical want to take over Southern Ireland or want to take over Great Britain. We have a situation we've created a, uh, a mini-state that wants to destroy our own state. It's a terrible situation. I don't know what the solution is. And uh, I, uh, I, I would like to think that people in power are thinking what to do. I don't know if any other uh, country has faced this kind of situation, at least not in modern times. I'm not a historian, but the fact remains the Oslo Accords created a monster right within our own homeland, and we have to deal with it. Hopefully, major minds are thinking about how to deal with it. Right now, there is no solution in sight. That is very sad. It's something in the meantime that we have to live with. It is a reality, an unpleasant reality. But as I said, it is a reality and has to be dealt with. I don't like to close on a negative note, but I, I just want to share with the listeners my understanding of the situation in which we are now living. It was brought about by our own mistakes with the Oslo agreements, and now we have to live with the results of those mistakes and figure out how to get through this most in a most safe manner. Uh, I leave you with that thought. Not a pleasant one, but a real one. Till next time, Chase Shapiro, signing off.